Well, we're back this morning with uh, part two of our 2019 Q&A messages. In case you're new with us this morning, we ordinarily preach through a book of the Bible verse by verse because every verse matters. And pretty soon we'll be doing that again with the book of the Bible of Colossians. But before that, we're doing some Q&A sermons in the meantime, and I've given you all the opportunity to submit some Bible questions in advance, which I'll answer for all of our benefit. And that's what we're doing again today. Now, just about every time I do one of these Q&A messages, I always seem to get a handful of questions about end times. People just love to study end times. People are very curious about end times. It's something every generation wants to know. And every generation seems to think that they're going to be the last generation from World War I to World War II to the Cold War, Cold War rather, to today. At least we're getting closer, right? You do have to beware wild speculation. We don't do eschatology, which is the study of end times by reading the newspaper. Instead, we aim to study the scriptures, see what they say, and go no further. Not everything about the future has been revealed. You just have to live with that fact. We don't know everything about the end. So you don't want to fall into a wild obsession about what might be. But many Christians just want to know, what does the Bible say about the future, about the end? And that's a, a blessed curiosity. People have lots of questions, and that always reflects these Q&A times. I always get questions about the end. I find that for most Christians, though, eschatology, you know, end times, it, it may be their least familiar subject. They don't know anything. They're just completely ignorant about what the Bible says about end times. Others have strong beliefs and views about the end, but maybe when challenged as to why they believe what they believe, you might get silence. In a way, it's understandable, though, because eschatology is a large, complex issue. The Bible is a big book. It's filled with lots of prophecy, and it, it takes a lot of time and work to understand how it all fits to together cohesively. And this explains, in part, why there are several different views or interpretations. Christians should not divide over such differences, though. And times, differences should be taken like a, a friendly debate among brothers and sisters in the household of God. But we believe the Bible is clear, so we should do our best to study the scriptures, seek to understand what God has revealed about the future. So for our time today, I've just grouped together all the questions I received that were related one way or another to end times and put them in one message for your benefit. Hopefully this will uh, instruct and edify you. And by answering these questions together, the whole church body can be instructed and, and built up. So we're going to do that now, focusing on all the questions you asked about end times. And we're going to treat the first two questions as a pair. So right off the bat, question one and question two. Question one, someone says, I believe the tribulation starts when Christ comes. Is this accurate? I believe the tribulation starts when Christ comes. Is this accurate? And question two, is there a rapture of Christians before the tribulation? Is there a rapture of Christians before the tribulation? These questions are very much related, actually. When does the tribulation begin? How does that relate to the timing of Christ's return? And how do both of those events relate to the timing of the rapture? These issues are intertwined, so we're going to handle them together. Questions one and two. Now, the purpose of these Q&A questions and these sermons, really, is not just to give you the matter-of-fact answer. I mean, this person actually asked a yes or no question, so I could just give a yes or no answer and be done with it. I mean, if that were the case, I could just email back everyone a one-sentence answer and just move on. But 
I believe value comes from not only providing the answers, but also showing from Scripture where they come from, why we believe what we believe. So if we're going to answer these questions for the whole church body, I think that's more beneficial. Give a little explanation, right? And so I'll give you the one sentence answer. At this church, yes, we believe there is a rapture of Christians before the tribulation, which begins, you might say, when Christ comes to gather the church. There's your short answer, but these questions and issues are worthwhile to explore further and learn about. So let's do that. Let's take this a bit further and keep going. I'm going to start off by giving you an introduction to the tribulation itself. Just kind of necessary background. What is the tribulation? What's it about? And we'll frame everything in relation to that. Well, the tribulation is spoken of by Christ himself, for example, in the Olivet Discourse, this future tribulation and great tribulation coming on the earth. It's a future time of calamity and distress where God's wrath is poured out on the earth. This fits the same picture of this tribulation time as painted in books like Joel and Daniel and, of course, Revelation. But as Matthew 24, 29 says, it's after the tribulation that Christ will return. The Son of Man will appear and he'll finally bring to an end the reign of sin, Satan, and death on the earth. And so we know at least the tribulation is this final time period before the end, before Christ's second coming. And regarding the duration of the tribulation, it's a future seven-year time period. We get that number from Daniel 9, 24 through 27. If you like, you can turn to Daniel 9 and follow along a little bit. It's confirmed by the book of Revelation. We have a seven-year time period. Daniel 9 is a massively important prophecy where God reveals to Daniel his plans for Israel's future and the coming Messiah. At this point, Israel had been exiled. The temple had been destroyed and Jerusalem conquered. But they were not without hope. And God wasn't finished in his redemptive plan for Israel and, and all the nations. And God is going to deal with Israel and redemption in a future 490-year time period. It's referred to as 70 weeks. And each of these weeks represents a seven-year time frame. So seven times 70, 490 years total. But this prophetic timeline for Israel's future is broken up into parts. You've got seven weeks, then 62 weeks. So that's 69 weeks total. And after that, verse 26 of Daniel 9 says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And so starting with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, verse 25, what this is saying is that basically 483 years later, the Messiah will be cut off and the temple will be destroyed all over again. And you know what? With profound accuracy, that part has already been fulfilled. It's already happened. Literally 483 years after that decree, Jesus came. The triumphal entry marked the ending of those 483 years literally, and then he was cut off. He was crucified. And thereafter, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed yet again. And so the events of the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy have been just amazingly and literally fulfilled. And that just leaves Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year time period. And what happened this last week? Well, the angel tells Daniel about the last week in verse 27. 
It has as its subject this figure, the prince who is to come from verse 26. Not the people, but the prince who is to come from verse 26. Earlier in Daniel's prophecies, this figure is referred to as the little horn. You might know him better as the Antichrist. And he's the subject of this last week, this final seven-year period. You can read in verse 27. He says, regarding this figure, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, he will come or will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in this final seven-year period, this ruler makes a covenant with Israel for one week or seven years. Israel is back in the land, and at the very least, by the midpoint of this time, this tribulation time, the temple has been rebuilt But during this time, Israel knows peace and safety under the protection of this figure. We'll just call him the Antichrist. I guess the most common title, although in the Bible, it's not the most common title. But anyway, meanwhile, as this period begins, he makes a covenant with Israel that the seven years begins. But likewise, at the same time begins the wrath of God. The wrath of God starts to be poured out on the world during this seven-year time. This is expressed by... Uh, Jesus in Revelation 6 and 7, as the breaking of the seals. This now comes from Revelation. And a series of judgments start to fall on the earth in the first three and a half years. They consist of famines, earthquakes, wars, persecution, and false teachers. At the midpoint of this seven-year period, the tribulation, the Antichrist figure is killed. He receives a fatal wound to the head. This is Revelation 13. But he is miraculously brought back to life, a resurrection. And this captivates the world and enables him to set himself up as God. He then breaks his treaty with Israel, as Daniel foresaw in the middle of the week. He breaks that covenant. A major persecution of Israel begins. Temple worship and sacrifice is ended. He creates an idol of himself to be worshiped. In the temple, committing what Jesus and Daniel both refer to as the abomination of desolation. And now the Antichrist becomes the dictator of the world. The Jews are heavily persecuted, but the nation is protected by God in the wilderness. That's Revelation chapter 12. It's probably during this time that the two witnesses arise and evangelize the world. You might remember them. Many people are saved, but many are martyred during this time. And now we're getting into the second half of this tribulation, the the seven-year period, the second half of that. You find now more judgment falls on the earth, expressed as the trumpet and the bowl's judgment. Just read Revelation. The trumpet judgments are more severe than the seal judgments. One-third of the earth's vegetation, sea life, and fresh water are destroyed. One-third of the luminaries are darkened, and a third of mankind is killed. After that, though, comes the seven bowl judgments. These are even more intense. This is right before the end. All the seas are turned to blood. All fresh water is lost. The sun scorches those on earth. There's supernatural darkness. The Euphrates dries up and the nations gather together to a place called Armageddon. Now, regarding Armageddon, it's it's not a single battle. 
but refers to a larger military campaign. It's Revelation 14 and 16. And the battle stretches some 180 miles, actually, all throughout the Middle East surrounding Israel. And the place is referred to as the wine press of God. The wine press of God's wrath, rather. At some point, though, the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, and all the nations realize that Christ is coming back, and they unite in their rebellion against him, but it is futile. Christ returns, and it says he treads the winepress of God's wrath, and the nations are consumed. It's Revelation chapter 19. At this point, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss. Jesus is established as the king of kings, and his millennial reign begins shortly thereafter. So in pretty quick summary fashion, that's the tribulation. It's future seven-year period of wrath and judgment on the earth. Now we're cramming a whole lot into a little time, but I'm hoping this just gives you a little framework for understanding what we're talking about by this tribulation, which both of these questions had something to do with the tribulation. Now, we could keep going, but let's relate that little background to our questions. The first question is, basically, when does the tribulation begin? And according to Daniel 9.27, it begins whenever the Antichrist makes a covenant with the people of Israel for seven years to protect them. That event begins Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation. And we believe that event is still future. Now, this person also asks, what is the relation of the tribulation to the coming of Christ? More specifically, does the tribulation start with the coming of Christ? Well, it depends what you mean by the coming of Christ. If you mean the coming of Christ to rule and reign on earth, then no, that takes place after the seven-year tribulation. But if you're referring to the coming of Christ to deliver the church from the tribulation, and if you hold to what's called a pre-tribulational rapture view, well then yes, you could say the tribulation begins with the coming of Christ. Not the coming of Christ to rule and reign, but the coming of Christ to take the church from the world. If that confuses you, then you need just a little introduction to the rapture. And this ties in with the the second question here where someone asked, is there a rapture of Christians before the tribulation? You can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll give you a quick little background to the rapture. What is the rapture? The word translated rapture comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. The word is harpazo, means to seize, snatch away, carry off. And Paul uses this word in that text to refer to believers being caught up in the air to meet Jesus. And so let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 for a little background. Paul says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. There's that word caught up together with them in the clouds 
to meet them in the to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I'll also read for you 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, which correlates. And Paul says there, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So at some point, Jesus descends from heaven, and at that point in history, all Christians who remain, they're still alive, they're caught up or raptured, meaning they pass directly from life to heaven without dying naturally. And they meet the Lord in the air to be with him and the rest of the saints forever. So that's the most basic and essentially agreed upon understanding of the rapture event. But the real question is, when does that take place? Specifically in relation to the tribulation time. Some Christians believe this rapture, it's really part of the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. And so they, they would place it at the end of the tribulation paired with the second coming of Christ. This is known as the post-tribulational, after the tribulation, rapture view. The Bible only references the rapture in a couple of places, and, and they just read those passages as second coming passages, and, and that's that. So they would answer, no, there's not a rapture of Christians before the tribulation, but, but after, really just tied into the second coming. But there are other Christians who believe otherwise. It's actually several views, but for simplicity, the, the other main view says otherwise, that they believe the rapture event does take place before the second coming, and even before the tribulation itself. This is known as the pre-tribulational rapture view, before the tribulation. And they would answer that, yes, Christians are raptured before the seven-year tribulation begins. And that's the view we hold here at this church. And so I, I could leave it at that. There's your answer. Is there a rapture of Christians before the tribulation? We would say yes. There's your yes and no answer. But again, we have some time, so I'm going to take that a little further and I'm sure the spirit behind this question is more of an explanation. Why do we believe that? This is all summary. I know I'm just dumping on you, but in continued summary fashion, I'll tell you why real quick. Here's four main reasons we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture view. Just for your exposure, four, four main reasons, pretty quick. Number one, there are many differences between the rapture passages and the second coming passages. There are many differences between the rapture and the second coming passages. You look at the few rapture passages and then you compare them to the many second coming passages. And they're similar in the sense that they speak of the coming of Christ. But you study them in detail and you see some differences that pop up. And I'll summarize some of the contrasts. In rapture passages, Jesus comes in the air. In second coming passages, he comes to the earth. Rapture passages, Jesus returns to heaven. Second coming passages, he stays on earth. Rapture passages, Jesus gathers the elect. Second coming passages, the angels gather the elect. Rapture passages, Jesus comes to bless. Second coming passages, he comes to judge. Rapture passages have no mention of the kingdom. Second coming passages deal with the, uh, the establishment of the kingdom on earth. And then in rapture passages, believers depart the earth and unbelievers remain. 
But in second coming passages, unbelievers depart the earth and believers remain. So overall, there's enough differences to lead us to believe that these may not be the same event. These may be two distinct events. That's not enough to display the rapture takes place before the tribulation. Even if the rapture is distinct from the tribulation, why, why before the tribulation? So let's keep going. Reason number two, the promise of God to deliver the church from his wrath. The promise of God to deliver the church from his wrath. You know, one of the main purposes of the tribulation time is judgment. That God's patience is over and he's finally pouring out his wrath on the earth for rebellion and for their wickedness. But this wrath is not for the true church and God has promised to deliver the church from that wrath. This promise is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 and chapter 5 verse 9 which say that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come and that God has not destined us for wrath. First Thessalonians is a key eschatological book, meaning end times book, where he really talks a lot about the tribulation. And so many take these to mean that God will keep the church from experiencing his wrath on earth in that tribulation time through, well, through the rapture. They won't be there. You also have Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. It's Christ He has a message for the church, and he says this. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Many take this to mean that the true church, which has faithfully endured, will be rewarded by not having to endure this hour of testing that's coming on the whole earth which no doubt refers to the the tribulation that the rest of Revelation goes on to describe. And so many would take this to mean that the church is well raptured and thereby protected from this hour of testing. Now speaking of Revelation, reason number three, the church is absent from Revelation chapters 6 through 19. I'll tell you why that matters. The church is absent from Revelation 6 through 19. These chapters especially go into great detail to describe the tribulation. That's all they are. Revelation 6 through 19, that's the tribulation. But in them, the church is not mentioned once. It's really striking compared to Revelation chapters 1 through 3, where the church is mentioned 19 times. And so many suggest it seems highly unlikely that John, who's writing Revelation in this vision, would shift from like super detailed instructions for the church in chapters 1 through 3, and then just forget to talk about the church and the rest of the book, which is about the tribulation. It seems very inconsistent, and many would take a a pre-tribulational rapture as the explanation for just the absence of the church in the main section of Scripture that talks about the tribulation. Where is the church in these chapters not directly mentioned? Then lastly, number four, The tribulation focuses on Israel, not the church. The tribulation focuses on Israel, not the church. In Revelation, while the church is not directly mentioned, Israel is mentioned in abundance. This makes sense, given that the tribulation is Daniel's 70th week, remember? And that was a prophecy pertaining to Israel's role in God's plan. And since cutting off the Messiah, 
national Israel has been hardened in unbelief. And during the tribulation, though, God will discipline Israel, but at the same time, prepare them for national restoration. Remember, Israel's present blindness and hardness are promised until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Romans eleven twenty five, and until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, Luke 21, 24. God's kingdom plan is mostly focused on Gentiles in this age, but in the tribulation, God's going to finally bring Israel into the new covenant, national Israel into the new covenant. Many therefore believe that the rapture of the church best corroborates with the Israel-centric nature of the tribulation, where God is again focusing his redemptive efforts on the hardened nation. So there you go. You put that together and it forms much of the argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, before we move on, I want to just also real quick temper you. Meaning in recent history, I don't know why, but the rapture event itself has become, you know, way sensationalized and blown out of proportion, books, movies, and all that stuff. But you should know that there's no proof text in the Bible about a pre- or post-trib rapture. There's no single passage that directly tells us the timing of the rapture. And so, like, you should study the word and seek to understand it as much as possible. But look, when you're not dealing with the the direct teaching of scripture, at the very least, be gracious and charitable with other Christians who disagree. And also say that, look, the timing of the rapture is like the last issue you should be militant about. I run into so many Christians who they're, they're militant about their view of the rapture and, well, you shouldn't be because the Bible actually doesn't say a whole lot about it. We're just trying to understand as best we can. Well, let's move on to a third question here in this Q&A. We've got a few more to go. Question number three. Who are the 144,000 people in Revelation? Who are the 144,000 people in Revelation? And this person asks, are these the Jewish people? Well, with all that tribulation background, we should be able to answer this one in stride. This is another question that relates to the tribulation time. The tribulation features its own cast of characters, from the Antichrist to the false prophet to the two witnesses, and also this group, the 144,000. Who are these people? Are they the Jewish people? Well, turn to Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7. We've already highlighted how the tribulation was a time of God's judgment on the earth. Jesus takes the scroll in Revelation chapter 5. This scroll is like the title deed of the earth. And he's the only one worthy to take it, break its seals. He's going to take back the earth from sin, Satan, and death. He's going to reclaim it. Only Christ can break the seals. And in chapter 6, he begins to break the seven seals that have bound up this scroll. And each time he breaks a seal, a judgment falls on the earth. God's wrath pours out. The sixth seal culminates with this terrifying geography-changing earthquake. These judgments are just the beginning of the birth pangs, though. People are already crying out with fear at the end of chapter 6, saying, who is able to stand? And chapter 7 comes in a way to answer that question. Revelation 7 shows that the tribulation is not just a time of wrath, but it's also a time of great mercy and unprecedented salvation. Let's read Revelation 7, 1 through 3. It says, after this, I saw four angels 
standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. More destruction is about to fall on the earth in judgment. But one angel basically comes up and says, hey, not so fast. Hold on one second. There's, there's a group of people here that, that we need to seal. This seal speaks of a king's signet ring, which might be pressed into melted wax, the seal of the king, for example. And it just indicated ownership, possession, authority. And so this group of people, these bond servants, they're going to be purchased by God and sealed by God. You might recall how during this time period, the tribulation, that those in the world, they're sealed too. They're sealed by the Antichrist with a mark on their forehead, which Revelation calls, as you know, the mark of the beast. They get their own seal. But God is sealing his own servants. He's guarding them with his eternal salvation, setting them aside for his service during this time. He's going to seal them with his mark on their forehead, which Revelation 14.1 says is the name of God and the name of Christ. They belong to God. But who are these people? Well, Verse 4 goes on. It says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. These people are the redeemed Israelites in the tribulation. Their identity is crystal clear from verses 4 through 8. Like I just said, these 144,000, they're from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And you keep reading, you find 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000. These are Jews who come to Jesus in the tribulation. Remember, a large focus of the tribulation is the restoration of national Israel. And these 144,000 will play a part in that. Revelation 14.3 adds that they are the first fruits of those among men whom God has purchased. They're the down payment of Israel's national salvation. Not until the end of the tribulation, however, will the rest of the nation look on him whom they have pierced and finally call out to Jesus as their Messiah. What exactly do these 144,000 do? What role do they play in the tribulation? What appears that they are special witnesses for God. These Jewish believers in Christ become witnesses spreading the gospel during the tribulation. If you look at Revelation 7, verse 9 and following, it pictures all the redeemed from every nation, from all tribes. They're all praising God and the Lamb for their salvation. Verse 14 makes clear, these are the ones, it says, who came out of the tribulation. These people got saved during the tribulation and then they either died or were martyred. How did they hear the gospel though? How do they get saved? Well, the implication is that the 144,000 witnessed to them. It seems likely, and we know that God never leaves himself without a witness. And this fits the picture of Revelation 14, which is the only other place where the 144,000 are mentioned. The picture, uh, this picture is the 144,000. They're praising the lamb with a special song. 
And then it says this about them in Revelation 14, verse 4. It says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. The tribulation will be a time of unthinkable sexual morality, although I guess we're getting pretty close. But these 144,000 will be kept undefiled from all of that. It also will be an age of just pervasive corruption, deception, lies. But these 144,000 will speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. God's going to use them, it seems, as his special witnesses on earth during this time. And I think as you just reflect on the future testimony of the 144,000, it's a good reminder, the more you know the tribulation, that when all seems lost, when it seems like the gates of hell have prevailed over the church, that no, God's always in control. He never leaves himself without a witness And he's constantly moving forward his kingdom plan. And he will do that through these servants, the 144,000. Question number four. Let's move on here. Question number four. This person asks, what do you think about people who use current events to try to predict when the end will come? We We might change that and say, what does the Bible say about people who use current events to try to predict when the end will come? This questioner also asked, or they wanted to know about teachers who are obsessed with end times and use a fear of the future to sell books and goods. So we'll talk about that too. You know, in all this discussion on end times and prophecy, there is a lot of agreement among Christians on the core factors. Most of the disagreement comes with issues of timing. Now, of course, that correlates to how literal or how figurative you take biblical prophecy, but it boils down to the, the practical differences uh, regarding timing. We're all reading the same prophecies in Daniel and Matthew and Revelation. But the question is, when will these things be fulfilled? In the past, in the present, or in the future? There are some Christians who believe they were fulfilled in the past. And they're known as preterists. Preterists. The tribulation, the antichrist, the 144,000 already fulfilled in the past. Some go so far as to believe that the second coming has occurred, spiritually, obviously, and that we're living in the new heavens and the new earth right now. But these preterists are those who believe that some or all predictive prophecy has already been fulfilled up to at least the AD 70 is when this all took place. Other Christians may see perhaps a, maybe a near fulfillment to prophecy in the past, but the full final fulfillment being still future. These are known as futurists, and that's where we land at this church, seeing the the bulk of end times prophecy as being, well, for end times, it's still future. Then there's a middle group who believes prophecy is being fulfilled right now in our age. These are called historicists. Historicists, they believe end times prophecy is being fulfilled in our generation, Every generation seems to have some historicists, but as each generation passes away, they're proven wrong over and over again. Each generation likes to believe they're the last, though. 
and they see all the bad current events and they reason, this has to be the end, right? Things can't get any worse than this. And some go so far as to link current events to biblical prophecy, and that is historicism. Some reformers fell into this trap, believing the end was near, the Pope was the Antichrist. You saw a lot during World War II and the Cold War as well. There's a lot of old dispensationalists who, in their mind, were very convinced that Russia was going to play a huge part in the tribulation, but that's kind of faded out. Now the guys are more like China or Muslim nations, and it changes every generation. They're all wrong. One, one, One generation will finally get it right, I guess, but they're probably going to be wrong. Look, there's no harm in entertaining some speculation without making any assertions, because Christ could come back in our generation, and People like to curiously wonder about that. But at the same time, he may not return for another 2,000 years. You simply don't know the day or the hour. You cannot predict it. It's futile. New Testament simply tells us to be always ready, always living in light of the end, longing for Christ's return. We should not obsess over end times to the neglect of holy living right now. And just the opposite, this expectation of Christ's return is meant to drive us to holy living right now. That's 1 John 3, 2 and 3, which says, We know that when he, Christ, appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Just the thought of the coming end and, and being with Christ should make, make you want to purify yourself now. And so like any teacher who obsesses over end times to the neglect of Christian living in this age is unbalanced and unstable. That already merits yellow flags. And then if a teacher then practices newspaper eschatology where they're just constantly trying to link current events to prophecy and they're always redacting and changing That's red flags. Date setting, of course, was rebuked by Christ himself. If you try and connect current events to prophecy, you're just going to be proven wrong. Every generation that tries that keeps getting proven wrong. So stop short of making any real assertions. Be discerning and be cautious of teachers who make strong claims that because that just happened in Israel, the end is here. Naturally, a lot of these teachers are linked to the charismatic movement today. And so they're often adding their own personal prophecies to the prophecies of Scripture, and they're just adding their own. But again, as each one doesn't come true, they're proving themselves as false teachers and false prophets. And I would just strongly caution you against such people. And yes, of course, many such false teachers prey on the weak and the ignorant using fear-mongering to sell books and goods. Yeah, that happens. Happens a lot. It just amazes me how people actually listen and send money to these people. I don't understand that part. It's very sad. Like the Pharisees, they take advantage of the old widow and extract her last two cents. One quick example is, it's kind of humorous, but mostly just sad. Remember the old televangelist Jim Baker, who's married to Tammy Faye Baker, And he was huge in the 70s and 80s, but his downfall was great. 1987, he was accused of rape by the church secretary, paid some hush money to cover that up. When that was revealed, he resigned. Then he was convicted of mail fraud, wire fraud, and misusing ministry funds and was sentenced to federal prison. 
But after he got out, he went back to televangelism, of course. And, but he pivoted from prosperity preaching to apocalypticism. And he now hosts a daily hour-long program, the Jim Baker Show, that features, quote, prophetic and biblical revelations brought to light in today's world. In these end times, God is providing answers and wisdom to be revealed at just the right time. And that time is now, end quote. That's pretty much the definition of historicism. Like it's, it's happening right now and we've got extra prophecy to tell you about it. So Baker uses the Bible plus his own personal revelations to really tell people about the end. It's just fear mongering to drive sales. His website looks like amazon.com for end time survival gear. Not joking. He sells generators, solar panels, water purifiers, an EMP resistant bag. He's got food survival kits. You can get a year's worth of freeze-dried food for $1,100. You can opt for the, quote, peace of mind final countdown offer, end quote. That's 31,000 servings of food for $4,500. It's kind of funny to watch videos of people tasting these, and they're saying it's just disgusting, but that's what you get. This offer was marketed as follows, quote, He says, imagine the world is dying and you're having breakfast for kings. Why not have parties when the world's coming apart? End quote. That doesn't scream red flags to you. And if all of his failed prophecies don't scream red flags, you need to be real discerning real quick. And that's really the answer to this question. It's just exercise great caution with these doomsday preachers. Do not listen to everything you hear on TV or read on the internet. Have you learned that yet? Test all things against scripture. It's like 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You seem to be constantly relying on God's word and be discerning that you will not be deceived. We've got time to squeeze in one final question. This question was asked randomly, but it fits perfectly into the theme of the morning and gives us a, a fitting final reminder it's question five. Is it okay to disagree on non-salvation issues like end times or cessationism? Is it okay to disagree on non-salvation issues like end times or they say cessationism? So this person wants to know if it's actually biblical to disagree on non-salvation issues. Is that okay? It sounds like this person already knows that it's not okay to disagree on salvation issues. Right? Certainly the line of fellowship or partnership it includes the gospel. Galatians 1.8, where Paul said, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, he is to be accursed. So if you get the gospel wrong, you're cut off from God, you're cut off from the church. There's no fellowship between light and darkness, and the church is called to guard against false gospels. And that type, that type of false teaching, there can be no unity with those who subscribe to a different gospel. And so that's going to include any gospel-related truth. Keep reading Galatians. You find that involves justification by faith, or by grace through faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law. That's essential to the gospel. You read a book like 1 John, you find that includes the personhood of Jesus Christ. Those who deny his deity, humanity, or that he's the Messiah, they're not of God, John says. And so these salvation issues, we, we can't compromise there, and, and there's no unity with those who 
differ on salvation issues. But this person is asking about non-salvation issues. And end times is a perfect example. Or spiritual gifts or church government. Is it okay to disagree on such issues? And I would say yes and no. Yes and no. It's not okay per se because, well, one person is wrong. One person is believing error. I'm not going to say that's okay. We are called to, Philippians 1.27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what I'm saying is it's not like we should just be cavalier when someone is believing error. It's never okay to believe error. We should humbly pursue the truth together, and we should seek to lovingly correct one another and, and strive for unity in Scripture, right? That's the ideal. But I think we all know, living in a fallen world, and we're all sinners, the reality is going to look different. You're just eventually going to have two people who do not agree on something. One of them is wrong. Neither thinks they're wrong. They're both fully convinced in their own mind they're right. And so it's not okay per se, but at the same time, it's not worth dividing over. There's no call of separation in the New Testament over these secondary issues. And the church loses more than it gains when it divides over secondary matters. And so in another sense, I would say it is okay to disagree on non-salvation issues. And that our unity and fellowship are based on Christ and the gospel. And if we agree there, well, we're brothers and sisters. And thereafter, a spirit of love and humility should pervade our interactions. Disagreements should be lovingly challenged and submitted to scripture. But as disagreements persist over non-essentials, well, love and unity should still win the day. I'm of the opinion of Augustine who said, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. If, if you can't treat others in the church with grace, the church will quickly become cold and bitter and will lose its testimony to the world. If you're dealing with a brother or sister who disagrees, never should slander or hatred or even ill will arise in your heart over these secondary issues. Let peace and love prevail for the sake of a unified gospel witness. And I think this is a very fitting reminder after we have studied, for example, this morning and times. There are many Christians who would disagree with maybe everything I said this morning, from the timing to the events to the details. But do they cherish the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Then there are brothers and sisters. There's no reason to divide from them. We should always pursue the truth together in love until we come to be of the same mind. But until then, let grace love, and humility overcome these differences for, for the sake of the gospel. That the unity for the sake of the gospel is supreme. And that is something we cannot compromise. This, after all, is part of us walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So as a final reminder, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, just listen. Where Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says, there's one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father 
who is over all and through all and in all. The important reminder that we are one in Christ. And so let's remember our oneness in Christ and the gospel. As we all agree on this, he's coming back and we can't wait. We long for his return. Let's be unified and seek to understand the scriptures and live rightly before him no matter what as one church. Let's pray. Okay, God, we praise you this morning just for studying your word, unpacking its truths about the end. You've revealed it for a reason. Your word has a lot to say about the end. You desire us to know certain things. This, you've not revealed that we might become obsessed per se, but that we would live rightly in light of the end, knowing that such an end is coming. You are a God who judges. This world is in rebellion against you and, and has been turned over to sin and Satan and death itself. They are reigning. But we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that will come when Christ returns, when sin and Satan and death will rule over this world no longer, but Christ will rule and his righteousness. And we will rule with him and be with him, sharing his righteousness by faith. May that hope, that blessed hope, purify us even now, that that we would live as kingdom citizens even now and give Christ our lives and our hearts by faith that we would not be excluded from that kingdom, but, but with him forever. It's all a marvel of your grace and power and righteousness. We pray that Christ comes quickly. Give us understanding of these things as we seek to study your scriptures. We want to know the end and, and learn what we can. But give us a spirit of humility and grace as we all seek to wrestle with the scriptures and, and understand them best we can. May it never compromise the unity of the body and the witness we have that Jesus is Lord. He is returning. And all men need to repent and believe on him today. May that be our witness here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.